Amen. Thank you, Jason and Rowan. We're starting a new series today in the book of James. I invite you to turn there now. And as you are, maybe you're wondering like me, how is all of this going to play out? How, how are we going to get through this in, in our world, all of the different challenges that we were already facing before the COVID-19 restrictions, things like racial prejudice and, and, and really hatred and, and division in our a culture and community, economic disparity, really, we call it social media, but it's completely anti-social media, the, the anger and the outrage from one thing to the next, these different views and perspectives on on sexuality and gender that are, that are incongruent and always morphing and changing. Where is all of this going? And then even within the church, how are, how are we going to get through this together? Uh, discussions or arguments about masks or no masks or obeying the government or not obeying the government or, or vaccine or no vaccine. How, how, are we supposed to, how are we supposed to get through through this, these are times where we so desperately need wisdom. If there's one way that you could be praying for myself or the other elders and leaders in our church, it would be that God would give us wisdom. Not the wisdom according to this world, but the wisdom. Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 3. This is going to be our key verse as we're going through this series. James chapter 3 and verse 17. This is the kind of wisdom that we're going after. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That is what we're looking for. The wisdom of this world is filled with all kinds of hidden and ulterior motives. We're looking for a wisdom that is pure. The wisdom of this world creates division and anger and outrage with one another, but we're looking for a wisdom that is peaceable. The wisdom of this world is who can shout louder or who can force their way, but the wisdom from above is gentle. The wisdom of this world is set and in transit in their own position and nothing can change that, and yet the wisdom that comes from above is open to reason, willing to learn. The wisdom of this, this world has, is all about justice, justice, justice. The wisdom from above is about justice, but it's also full of mercy and good fruits and is impartial. There's no partisanship. There's no party politics. It's impartial and sincere. It's authentic. It's real. That's the kind of wisdom that we are going after in the book of James. The, now turn with me to chapter 1 and verse 1 as we jump into this amazing uh, book together. It begins with a name, the name James. In the way that we write letters, we put the other person's name, the person that we're writing to, uh, we, we put their name first. But here we have, uh, like we see all throughout the New Testament, it starts by introducing the author. Now, who is James? There's really three uh, men in the New Testament, uh, noteworthy enough, who are possibilities to be the author. There's no other details given here about James. There was James, the son of Zebedee. We learn about him in Matthew uh, chapter 10. He's in the list of the disciples, him and his brother John, the sons of a thunder. But 
he was, he was executed uh, quite early on in Acts chapter 12, so it's unlikely that he wrote this letter. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. He was another one. There was two disciples named uh, James, but we, we know hardly anything about him. You see, there's only one James in the New Testament that really required no introduction. Everyone knew who this James was, and this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, Jesus' little brother. We see in Mark chapter 6, verse 33, when the crowds are, are, are trying to figure out who this Jesus is, they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James? And Joseph and Judas and Simon, I guess Mary and Joseph were sort of on a J theme, you know, so Jesus was their first and then James and then Joseph, Judas, and then I don't know what happened if they just ran out of names when they had their, their last son, a Simon, but James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, he didn't always follow Jesus. He didn't always believe in Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, look at this verse on the screen. It says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus is healing people and saying that, he, that people's sins are forgiven and, and, and teaching the Bible like he, like he was some sort of rabbi, like he had authority. And they're like, well, he's, he's gone crazy. He's out of his mind. James thought Jesus had lost his mind. John 7, 55 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. But by the time we get to the beginning of the book of Acts, we're, we're given very little detail about what happened after that. All we know is that Jesus had some brothers and his brothers thought he was crazy. His, his, his family didn't believe in him. But when we come to the beginning of the book of Acts, when they're in the upper room, look at Acts 1, verse 14 on the screen. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is before the, the day of Pentecost. It says, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There was some sort of turning point where James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, these brothers of Jesus, became followers of Jesus. And the best bit of evidence we have is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll show you this on the screen. That when Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve, the other apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then in verse 7 it says, then he appeared to James. James became a follower of Jesus. He had a, a personal encounter with the risen Lord, and that forever changed his life. And as we go on in the, in the book of Acts, we see in Acts 12, 17, 15, 13, 21, 18, as we see in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, and verse 12, that James emerged. He was really the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem, that church that got started in Acts chapter 2. When they're looking for leadership, when they're looking for teaching, when they're looking for direction, the people looked to James. Now, we know in the book of Acts that, that, the, uh, that James is this leader, that he's so influential. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't need to introduce himself at all. He just simply says, James. But look at how he describes himself. He doesn't, he doesn't flaunt the fact that he's this influential leader in the largest and biggest and flagship church of, of Christianity there in the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't say, James, the senior pastor of, of this massive church. In That's not what he says. He doesn't even introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus. Look what he says. James, a servant. He's a servant. This is true spiritual leadership. 
There was, there was, there was clear indication here that James understood his place. He says he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord and he is Christ. He is master, that's what Lord means, and he is Messiah, that's what Christ means. And then he says, he introduces himself and then he addresses his audience. He says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings to the 12 tribes. These are, he's writing to Jewish Christians and he says that they are in the dispersion. Remember in the book of Acts, after Stephen was martyred, there was this massive persecution in the church in the city of Jerusalem. And so they all spread out from to Judea and Samaria and even beyond that, sharing the gospel. And James stayed in Jerusalem and he wrote this letter. This letter is one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. It comes at the end of the New, Te at the end of the New Testament in our Bibles, but chronologically, this is one of the first writings. And he is in writing to encourage these brothers and sisters who have been spread out. They used to be part of his church. He used to see them and teach them and encourage them. They used to serve together and minister together there in Jerusalem. And now they're all spread out. And he greets them at the end of verse 1. Now, James doesn't write like sort of the other New Testament writers. The other New Testament writers would offer some sort of thanksgiving, a, a comments about the church, you know, say hi to this person, or, or, or they would even start with sort of like a theological description, like in 1 Peter, like we're born again to a living hope, like Paul in Ephesians where he says we, we, we've been predestined for adoption of, as, as sons. He doesn't get into any of that. He just says, count it all joy. When you, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, he gets right into the heart of what he wants to talk about. So the title for today's message is this. It's Wisdom About Trials. Wisdom About Trials. These Jewish Christians, they were experiencing a number of trials. They were getting used to living in a new community. They were getting accustomed to a new culture, a new way of life outside of the city of Jerusalem. They were, they were struggling with being persecuted, not just by Jewish people, but by the Roman authorities as well. They were going through various trials, and they needed wisdom. And so what we're going to see from today's passage is this, is that knowing who God is and how we relate to him transforms our trials. Knowing who God is and how we relate to him transforms our trials. James is going to encourage these, these Christians to think about something, to ask for something, and then to believe something. He's going to challenge them to think, and to ask and to believe. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He begins with the word count. That means consider. He's telling them to think. He's not telling them to feel. He's not telling them to feel joy. He's telling them to think, to, to consider what they are going through in terms of joy. So jot this down if you're taking notes today. Number one, think. God uses trials to mature us. God uses trials to mature us. He challenges them to think, to consider, not to feel. The, the Christian life is, is a life of joy, but that doesn't mean that we're always smiling. 
Matthew, one of our drummers the other week, was joking about how people have learned to pretend like they're smiling under their mask. You know how we kind of smile with our eyes? And, and, but, so we sort of do that thing with our eyes, but, but really our face is like this, even though our eyes are smiling. Sometimes in the Christian life, we, we think that we just need to have this happy, slappy, sappy smile on our face. Oh, oh what a joy. Oh, rejoice. That's not what joy is about. Joy is not just a simple feeling. It, it, it runs deeper than the expression on our face. Joy is a decision rooted in faith and hope based on who God is and what he has done. Joy is a decision that is rooted in faith and hope based on who God is and what he has done. He says that we should count the trials that we're going through as joy. Now, one of the things we're going to notice about James is he sticks very closely to the Sermon on the Mount. Really, hardly anything he says can, can, cannot be related back to something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, John MacArthur, in his commentary, outlined this chart here. Let me show, you, show, show it to you here. Here's all the different times that the dark gray columns, these are quotations from the book of James, and then beside them in the light gray columns, these are all of the different references to the Sermon on the Mount. So when James says, count it all, count it all joy when you encounter these trials, does that sound familiar? It sounds like what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Let me show you this verse on the screen, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's why they're scattered, because they're being persecuted. And what does James say? Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. Now, James was writing from Jerusalem. He was writing to Jewish Christians who were in the dispersion. But, but because James isn't the only author, because the Holy Spirit is inspiring James as he is writing this, even though we're not Jewish, even though we're not living at that particular time, these words still speak to us. We are all struggling with various trials. Various trials. Trials are, are varied. There's a variety of them. There's, there's different trials that kids right now are going through with online school and not connected to their, to their friends. There's unique trials that teenagers and young people are going through right now. There's, there's different trials that university students are facing. There's different trials that old guys like me are facing. There's different trials that men face that are different from, from women. There are different trials that, that people of different skin colors or ethnicities or back there are various trials. Trials differ in degree. You, you can have a, a trial with your skin. You could have a sliver or psoriasis or skin cancer. You, you could have a trial raising your two-year-old child. You could have a trial longing for fertility and wanting to have a two-year-old child. You could, you could have a trial of bereavement where you've buried your two-year-old child. You see, there's a, there's a variety of trials. Now, one doesn't cancel out the other. It just gives a sense of perspective. Do you know what I'm saying? Every trial is a trial. Trials are various. 
but it is helpful for us to understand the perspective. There's trials that differ according to history. The trials that we face are different from the trials that James' audience would have understood or someone who was living in the Middle Ages or in the days of the Reformation. Trials are various. There are trials that are different geographically or politically. We talk about first world problems, right? Where we have, we have trials that, that other people in the world, they'd love to have those kinds of, those kinds of problems. There are, there's a variety of trials. Trials are various. That word various there could also be translated complicated, You see, our trials are often this sort of multi-layered net or web of a bunch of things working together. The world in which we're living in is very confusing. And loved ones, if we're honest with ourselves, we're confusing too. We're this mishmash, messed up concoction of emotions and motivations and, and, and all of these different things all wound into one. Our trials are various. They're complicated. He says, count it all joy. We've got to choose to rejoice, to think in terms of joy when we experience these various trials. Look at verse 3. For you know, there's another thinking word. Count, consider it joy, because you know. He's telling them to think. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith, these trials that we're going through, produce steadfastness. Produce steadfastness. Now, understanding this concept is absolutely essential to understanding the role that trials play in our lives. The the Greek word is, is hypomene, hypomene. Hypo means under, like a hypoglycemic who has low blood sugar. Hypo means low. It means to be under. And mene means to remain or to stay. So hypomene means to stay under. The trial is pressing down on you and you're not running from it. You're staying under it. Now the English word as it's translated is steadfast. Now I normally don't unpack English words, but steadfast is kind of an older word. So here's what steadfast means. Stead means place. And fast, think like fastening, means secure. So to be steadfast is to be secure in place. So why can we rejoice? Why can we rejoice and count it joy when we face trials? Because these trials produce steadfastness. They help us stand in place. Now you might be thinking, why on earth is that good news? Like that's the big thing? We we get to stand in place. And honestly, like 24-year-old Ted Duncan would have been like, who cares about standing in place? I would want James chapter 1 to say something like, uh, rejoice in your suffering, rejoice in your trials, because we know that, that, that the testing of our faith will produce fruitfulness, or effectiveness, or power, or influence. I mean, that's what I was looking for when I was 20, and I thought, standing in place, can we just take that for granted? But loved ones, listen, 15 years later, no, 17 years later, wow, I'm old, 17 years later, When I look at the different Christian leaders, worldwide leaders that have fallen 
and stumbled and are no longer standing. When I think about brothers and sisters in Christ that I was standing shoulder to shoulder with in pursuit of Jesus, and they're no longer pursuing Jesus. When I think about all of the different challenges and obstacles that I have faced and all of the different people who are falling all around me, listen, just standing, that's a huge deal. And you might be thinking, these COVID-19 restrictions, all of the trials that we are facing, what is this producing? Listen, if you're here today and you're still a follower of Jesus Christ, after everything you went through this past year, after everything you've gone through in your life, simply rejoice in the fact that you're still steadfast, that you're standing in place, that God has been faithful in keeping you where you are. doesn't seem like a big deal. Loved ones, the older that you get, the more of a big deal this is going to become. That you're standing, that you're steadfast, that you've remained in place. God uses these trials. He uses them to mature us. Then look at what he says in verse 4. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Now, this is a different, this is a writing technique that James uses. He uses a, a word, like he, it's steadfastness in verse 3, and then he builds on that word steadfastness in verse 4. So he ended the verse with steadfastness. Now he's beginning the next verse with steadfastness. So trials produce steadfastness. Speaking of steadfastness, you got to make sure that it has its full effect. So as much as it is a reason for us to celebrate that we are standing in one place, there is more reason to celebrate. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, if we don't stand in place, we won't, we won't see God accomplish what he wants to give us when we're standing there. Because when we stand firm in trials, trusting in him, God wants to do something in us. He wants to produce maturity. That's what the word perfect is all about. It's not sinlessness. It's not about being sinless. It's about being fully developed. But becoming a, a, a complete a Christian in every area of our lives. In chapter 3, verse 2, he's going to say, we all stumble in many ways. So James isn't aiming at sinless perfection here. He's, he's talking about perfection in terms of maturity. Then he uses the word complete. The Greek word there is, is, is holokleteros, where we get the idea of holistic, this idea of being complete. Nothing is missing. And then he says, lacking nothing. He uses three different words to say the same thing, that God wants us to stay in place so that he can do a work of maturing us for his glory. So what is God trying to do in us? Listen, what is it that only trials can do to produce maturity? Here's a couple of things. Trials produce patience in us. Helps us mature in the idea of patience. So often the difficulty in the trial is the waiting When will it end? And that waiting produces the fruit of the Spirit of patience in us. It also produces humility. When we suffer, when we go through trials, it humbles us. We used to rely on ourselves, and then these trials come into our lives, and we realize we can't do it on our own. 
Trials also loosen the grip that we have on the things of this world. It exposes the idols in our lives and extracts them. It's often painful, but it's a beautiful thing. Trials help us to focus on eternity. While we struggle here in this world, we are given an eternal perspective. You ever notice how trials make us more thankful? That so often when we're going through something that's, that's really difficult, we look at the small little things and we're filled with, with gratitude, with thankfulness. And trials also help us in developing empathy so that we can relate to other people when they are struggling and when they are suffering. This is all part of God's work of maturing us so that we would be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So we're, we're commanded here to think. So just stop and think here for a minute, okay? We, we've been in COVID-19 restrictions now for, for over a year. Are you standing in place? Because if you are, you can rejoice in that. You're still following Jesus. Everything that we've been through as a culture, all of the different ways that, that have sort of discouraged or divided the church of Jesus Christ. Rejoice that you are standing, but then ask this other question. Is steadfastness having its full effect in your life? Are you more like Jesus here now in April 2021 than you were when all this started on March the 12th, 2020? Have you grown in these areas of patience and humility and, and focusing on eternity and thankfulness and empathy? Have you become more like Jesus or have you become more like the world? Have you become more fully developed as a Christian, more holistic in your faith? Are you allowing, it says, let steadfastness have its effect. Are you letting God produce maturity in your life? Are you continually fighting against what he is trying to do? So, so, so much energy has been spent by all of us thinking about, here's what the government should do, and here's what the church should do, and here's what my neighbor should do, here's what my boss should do, rather than saying, God, what are you doing? What are you trying to produce in me right now? God, I want to be steadfast, and I want that steadfastness to produce its full effect in me. God uses trials to mature us. So we can rejoice. And that maturity, he says at the end of verse 4, means that we're perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And he does that thing again where he uses one word from one verse and then launches into that same word in the next verse. Look at verse 4. But if any of you lacks, so he just used the word lacking. Then he says, speaking of lacking, if any of you lacks, if any of you lacks wisdom, which is the theme of this book, this is what we're going after, the wisdom from above. He says, listen, if any of you are having a hard time seeing what I'm saying, if any of you are not thinking about your trials in terms of joy, if any of you are not seeing maturity in your life, if any of you lacks wisdom, then ask for it. So he's, he commands us to think. And now here's the second point. He's commanding us to ask. He's commanding us to ask because God is generous. If you're not able to see things the way that James is describing it, if you're not able to think this way, then ask for wisdom so that you would be able to think this way. Again, James hardly strays very far from Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. This is really just kind of like a sermon or a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, 
He says here, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, for he, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask, and it will be given him. Does that sound familiar? Ask, and it will be given him. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Again, James, he's just leaning very heavily on the teaching of his older brother in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not really saying anything new. He's just reminding these brothers and sisters in Christ how to live, how to follow the Sermon on the Mount. He says we should ask for wisdom. The Greek word there is Sophia. Wisdom is a God-given and God-centered discernment in the practical areas of life. How do we live? How do we live in this world? How do we live together as the church? How do we live as a witness in our culture? We need wisdom. We need practical insight into how to live in this way. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is God-given and wisdom is God-centered. It's viewing everything in our life from the perspective that there is a God. So, when we're facing these trials, don't ask for a way out of your trial. Ask for wisdom to get through your trial. Don't ask for a way to get out of your trial. Ask for wisdom to get through your trial. That's what James is getting at here. And he points out three things we need to know about God. It says, let him ask God. And then it says, who gives generously to all without reproach. So God gives generously. That's the first thing. He's a generous God. He gives with no reluctance. The Greek there says, let him ask the giving God. God is the giving God. God can't help but give. Think about creation. He didn't just create, you know, like a few dozen stars. Billions and billions of them. There's this sense of abundance. Think about the ocean that's just teeming with life. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They, they couldn't... We, sometimes we get it backwards. There was only one tree they weren't allowed to eat from, but they could eat from any tree they wanted. God just can't help but give. He is the giving God. He is generous. When he gives, he's just fulfilling who he is. God can't not give. He is always giving. He is a generous God. Number two, he gives to all. It says right there, he gives to all. There's no restriction to his to who he gives to. You know, sometimes people uh, call me specifically or email me or, or fill out a connection card and, and they want myself or the elders to, to pray specifically for them. And listen, that's very biblical. That's very right. But sometimes I wonder, sometimes people think that God listens more to me because of my position in the church than he would listen to any other Christian. Listen, he, he gives generously to all. You, you don't just need some special spiritual leader to pray for you. I'm not saying stop asking for prayer. Keep asking for prayer. But understand that he gives generously to all. Whether you're a baby Christian, whether, whether you serve in a prominent ministry position or not, he gives generously to all. And then it says that he gives without reproach. Reproach, again, it's kind of like steadfast, not really a word we use in everyday uh, English. Re reproach means to insult or to reprimand. It means to find fault. That's how it's translated in the NIV. Or the CSB translates it. 
without criticizing. The idea is that, is that when we come to ask God, God doesn't say, you know, this is a bad time. Why are you asking me now? Or how dare you ask in light of what you've done before in the past? I'm not going to answer you. Do, do you know who you are? That's not how God gives. He gives without reproach. Think about the gospel. God can give without reproach because Christ took the reproach that we deserve. The sin that would disqualify us from asking has been taken away and washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were far off, but Christ has brought us near so we can now draw near before God's throne and not be cast out because of what Christ has accomplished for us. So God gives with no reluctance. He's generous. He gives with no restriction. He gives to all. He gives with no rejection. He gives without reproach. I love what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you had any doubt about God being a giving God, just look at the cross. Just look at what was given for us. Look at the bread. Look at the cup. Look at the body of Christ that was given for us. The, the, the blood of Christ that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that we would not experience the reproach of God. God is a giving God. And loved ones, understand this. Remember this. When, when we're reluctant to pray, remember this. God is more willing to answer than we are willing to ask. Giving is in his nature. Answering prayer is what he does so if we lack wisdom, if we don't know how to navigate this particular struggle we're having at work or with our family, or if we're, we're trying to make sense of what is happening around us, ask, ask for wisdom. Again, don't ask for the way out of your trial. Ask for wisdom to get through it. So we're supposed to think because God uses trials to mature us. We're supposed to ask because God is generous. And then lastly, jot this down. We're called to believe because God will answer we're called to believe because God will answer. Verse 6 says, but let him ask in faith. Let him ask in faith. Now, this is, not a, this is not a specific command. Point one, asking, that's commanded. Point two, sorry, point one, thinking, that's commanded. Point two, asking, that's a command. Point three, it's not a new command, but it's expanding on the command given in point two. He's this is how we're supposed to ask. We're supposed to ask in faith. Supposed to ask in faith. Let him ask in faith, verse 6 says, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, what do we mean here by asking without doubting? Now, some churches would teach this, like doubting is this, or sorry, faith is this commodity that, we're, that we've got to get as much as we can. And if we get enough faith, if we just psych ourselves up enough and feel it enough, like God is going to do it, then God's just kind of helpless. He's like, well, he's got a whole lot of faith there. I have to give in and give him what he's got. Oh, look her, look at her over there. She doesn't have enough faith. I'd love to answer her, but she's still got to work up a little bit more faith. You know, I was thinking about, about Chuck E. Cheese uh, this week. And um, 
man, can you ever imagine Chuck E. Cheese reopening in these conditions? Like, think about Chuck E. Cheese. You've got all of these people, and they're all touching all of these machines, and then they go to these tables, and they have pizza. No one washes their hands, and then out comes the cake, and a kid blows on the cake, respiratory droplets all over it. Then we're passing it. I mean, how on earth will that institution ever open up again? But I was thinking about Chuck E. Cheese. You know, you go over to these different games, right, and you're trying to get all these tickets. And, and, then, and then you've got this, behind this glass case, behind this counter, there's some teenager there. And he, he could give you that stuff, but you've got to have enough tickets. And sometimes we think, about, we think about the Christian life, we think about prayer that way. That faith is like, I've got to get enough tickets, and God's there behind the counter. And uh, there's something there that I really want, but if I just get enough faith, then, uh, then I'll acquire. It's like there's some sort of economic transaction that takes place. That's, that's not what's being described here. When it says ask in faith, it's not about believing that you will get what you want and therefore forcing God's hand. No, it's believing everything James just said about God. Do you believe? Do you have faith that he's generous? Do you have faith that he gives to all? Do you have faith that he gives without reproach? That's what's on the line here. Prosperity preachers love this idea of let him ask in faith and not doubt because they, they think about faith as a commodity. Prosperity preachers love James chapter 1 verse 6, but they don't really love James chapter 1 verse 2 about rejoicing in trials because they believe you're always supposed to be healthy and wealthy and not experience any trials, but that's not what, what James is getting at here. The doubting here has to do with whether or not, not, not with whether or not God will give us what we want, but doubting whether or not God is good. Is he faithful to his promises? Does he have a purpose and a plan for what we are going through? Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 6 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. And then it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith isn't that you believe and that he will give you what you ask. No, it's that you believe and that he does reward those who seek him. He is listening. He is generous. He will answer. He will give without reproach. Think about Jesus and all the different parables he told about prayer. Remember Jesus told that parable about the, you know, the guy he's sleeping at night and then the friend knocks on the door. He says, can I borrow some bread? And then, and then the, the guy, even though he doesn't want to, he's already asleep. He says, okay, fine, I'll give you some bread. And then Jesus says, God's not like that. God's not like the reluctant friend who's sleeping. If, if, your, if your friend will still give you bread even when he doesn't want to, how much more will God do that? And then he, then he tells the other parable of the, of the poor little kid who asked for a loaf of bread and the dad gives him a stone. And Jesus says, no, um, God's not like that. God's not an incompetent father who, who gives stone instead of a bread. Or then that, 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 other, that other parable about the widow, the persistent widow, and the judge, the reluctant judge. It says that the judge didn't fear God, didn't care about people, but because the widow just kept bugging him, he gave her what she wanted. Jesus told, told us, God's not like a sleeping friend who's 
really inconvenient. God is not a, a, a inconvenienced. God is not an incompetent father who doesn't know what. God is not some selfish judge. God is generous. The number one reason why we don't pray is because we don't believe that God actually is generous and that he gives to all and that he gives without reproach. That's what James is getting at when he's talking about faith here. Then James uses this brilliant metaphor in verse 6. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This, there's no direction. Now, when I was thinking about this, I was, I was thinking about, you know, you see these things at gas stations and strip malls. I don't even know what they're called. These sort of inflatable people. And there's, there's sort of wind coming up in a fan and then the wind in the air kind of blows them around. And listen, this is someone who doesn't have a rock-solid theology of God's goodness that when they're praying, they're being cast all about. So they're sort of like, you know, they sort of start like this. And then they have a minute of faith and they're super excited and then they come back down again and then maybe this comes up and then they're all over the place and there's absolutely no stability. That's what James is painting a picture of here, like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. James says, listen, if you don't have a clear picture of who God is, if you don't have strong faith, again, not that God will specifically answer the way you want him to, but if you have faith to believe that he will answer, and he will answer with what is good, if you don't have that, you're going to be unstable. You're going to be double-minded. Think back to Joshua 24, where Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve idols or are you going to serve God? Think about Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, verse 21, where he says, if, if Baal is God, then serve him. But if God is God, then serve him. How long will you go limping between two opinions? Are you trusting God to give you wisdom or, or are you hedging your bets? and trying to manipulate and manage things on your own. It says that this person in verse 8 is unstable in all his ways. Unstable, that's the opposite of steadfast. Steadfast is to remain in place. But the person who lacks faith, the person who doesn't know who God is, remember, knowing who God is and how we relate to him, that is what transforms our trials. But if we don't know God, if we don't know how we relate to him, then we will be unstable in all of our ways. Have you ever been at the dinner table and you're trying to pour water for someone that's not really paying attention? And they're not really focused on you and the, and the pitcher and the cup is kind of moving all over and they're looking this way or they're talking to that person and you're, tr you're trying to give them what they're asking for. They wanted water, but it's unstable so the water cannot be given. That's what James is saying here. If you ask but doubt, if you don't have faith that God will use these trials to work in your life, then the cup is always moving. He's generous. He's trying to pour it into your cup, and yet it's just moving all around. We need to be stable, steadfast, not tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea. 
We've got to ask and ask and not doubt. We've got to ask like the struggling father who had a, a son that was tormented by this demon. And then Jesus talked to this man about faith. And then the man said in Mark 9, 24, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Loved ones, ask the generous God who gave us his son. Loved ones, don't be tossed to and fro by the waves and by the wind. Trust in the one who walked on the waves and told the wind to be still. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God, we are asking you, Lord, and we, we, we unashamedly ask that you would give us wisdom. We know that you are generous. We know that you give to all, every person in this room, as few of, of us as there are, every person that is watching online right now, we pray that you would give us wisdom. We all struggle with various trials. Give us wisdom, Lord, to get through them. Thank you that you give without reproach. Thank you that you gave your son. Lord, we want to trust in you. And we say like that father in Mark 9, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we pray that you would do a good work in our lives and in our church as we seek your face for the wisdom that we so desperately need. Lord, we love and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.